your Bibles tonight and turn to Galatians chapter 4. And we'll be in Galatians 4 for our Bible study tonight. And that's what we intend to do is study the Word of God. Amen. And there'll be some teaching and some principles to be reminded of tonight as we walk through a passage of Scripture that might be a little, a little difficult just at first glance or first reading. And it helps to do verse-by-verse uh, verse study. And if you haven't been with us, and we've taken a little break because we were gone in Lebanon, but if you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through this epistle that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia and just working verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter through and finding there's some, some deep doctrine in the book of Galatians. And, and it's quite a study uh, for me personally to be able to absorb it uh, to understand it and then to try to uh, present it in a way that's understandable and that would be a challenge and a blessing at the same time and so uh, you pray for me even tonight as we go through this it's quite a study today and uh, sometimes I walk away or get up from studying I feel like mentally exhausted uh, from from uh, all that is there and how do you how do you unpack it and then concisely you know put it back together so there's just so much more than what can be said on, in one service and in one time. And so we'll trust that the Lord will bring us back to it as, at some other time as He sees fit. But our text tonight is verses 21 to 31 of Galatians 4. And I'll remind you of some things that we have talked about so that we get the context again. The Bible says in verse 21, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath more, many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, Even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, as I said, you read over some of that, and that's like a lot of words. And how much did you absorb in just the reading of that, right? And so to unpack it and then to put it into principle or application is the challenge for us tonight. And, and you pray for me as we do this, okay? Uh, and there'll be some teaching going on here tonight and some principles that, that can be uh, beneficial for us, some reminders as well. As we look back at what Paul is talking about here, back in chapter 3, Paul had doctrinally proved again that salvation 
is by grace through faith. And if you've been with us, you know we've majored on this over and over, that the reason Paul wrote this epistle was because the churches of Galatia were being carried away in false doctrine from the Judaizers, who said that, that yes, you need to believe in Christ for salvation, but you also need to add in the works of the law, like circumcision, in order to truly be saved. And the Judaizers were teaching the churches of Galatia that you're more spiritual when you add in the works of the law. It makes you have favor with God, and that is not the case. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Paul wrote harshly to the churches of Galatia, and he was worried about them, all the labor that he had put into them was in vain, that they were going to uh, not listen or take heed, but follow after false doctrine. And he says, they're deceiving you, they're, they're, they're corrupting you, uh, and I'm worried about you. And so we've walked through all of that, and in chapter 3, Paul proved again that salvation is by grace through faith. And then in chapter 4, Paul begins to make an appeal to the churches of Galatia to dump this legalism thought and idea that they were being carried into and get back on track in the right doctrine and in your life for Christ. And so Paul begins to make a series of appeals in chapter 4. And his first appeal was, first of all, don't turn back, don't slide back. He says in verse 9 of chapter 4, he says, But how, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? He's like, he, and he says, you, you, you've come away from something that was, that was bondage, that was slavery, to, the, to liberty in Jesus Christ. And after all that, how is it that you turn back again to something that's, that's going to end up enslaving you? Do you want that? So his appeal is, don't backslide. Don't turn back. And Paul was beginning to fear that his work was coming to naught, that he had labored and sacrificed in vain in the ministry that he had bestowed upon these Galatians. Look at verse 11. He says, I'm afraid of you. He's not saying, I'm afraid of you. He said, I'm afraid for you. That's what he's meaning here. Lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. And so Paul makes this appeal that they stay with it. They don't turn back. The second appeal that he makes is to rekindle a relationship with him. Paul thought of them as his children in the faith, and he said, I love you like a father loves his sons. And look at verse 13. He says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus, where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and, given, and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. And so Paul's appeal is to rekindle this relationship that they used to have. And we talked about this last time that love and respect can easily turn to hatred and contempt if the heart is not right. Once there was a time when the Galatian believers would have plucked out their own eyes, Paul said, and given them to him. But now they seem to be becoming his enemy because he refused to compromise with their legalism and he's calling them on the carpet for it. 
And he says, am I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? The reason I'm telling you the truth is because I love you like a father loves his sons. And as he thought about the people that he so willingly gave his life for, he feared that they had changed. Something was wrong and something was different. Their reception had now turned to rejection. And so his appeal to them is to rekindle affection for him and listen to the truth. And that brings us to our text verses tonight, where we see Paul's third appeal. And his third appeal is in verse 21. He says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? In other words, what he is saying is, those of you who desire to go back under the law, don't you understand? The word here means to understand. Don't you understand what the law really says and what you're actually doing and where it's going to lead you? And that's really where we get into, from this point on, to the rest of the book of Galatians. Paul makes this third appeal, but then he gets really practical with how things play out in your life when the law has control and when your flesh ends up having control. And so, that's where we're going to be tonight in this portion of Scripture. Paul was trying to help these confused Galatian believers in their spiritual lives. And when he had first come to them with the gospel, he said, I labored and I travailed to see Christ formed in you. And now they're at a point where they're moving backward. They're not moving forward in their Christian life. They're falling into this legalism and to bondage. And so Paul has to travail again for them. Look what he says in verse 19. My little children, in chapter 4, verse 19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He says, I'm willing to do it again until Christ is formed in you. He was willing because he loved them like a father loves his sons, and he longed to see Christ manifested in them. And since the Judaizers appealed to the law, Paul now accepts the challenge, and he's going to use the law to prove that Christians are not under the law anymore. And what he does is he takes a familiar story, the story of Isaac and Ishmael, and he draws from it some basic truths about the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. And he takes some events that were real events, and he describes what actually happened, but Paul uses them as an allegory to teach another truth. And you know what an allegory is? Notice what Paul says, verse 24, which things are an allegory... For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. He says these things are an allegory. An allegory was a narrative that has a deeper meaning behind it. So there were actual events that happened, but it was more than just these actual events that happened. They actually had spiritual significance to them. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to discern what that deeper meaning was and how it described the relationship between law and grace. And so we're going to attempt to try to draw this out tonight so that we understand some principles from it. We're going to see three things. We're going to look at the historical facts. We're going to look at the spiritual truths. And then thirdly, we'll look at the practical blessings. 
All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight as we study your word and we need your spirit to give us understanding. And Lord, I pray that you'd help, help me, give me clarity of thought tonight to be able to expound on your word and to apply it uh, where it should be. And Lord, I pray that the spirit of God would make those applications in every heart. And Lord, that you bless the preaching, teaching of your word here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first of all, consider the historical facts. Look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says here, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Now, Paul is talking about Isaac and Ishmael. And maybe the best way to grasp the historical account here is to go back and just briefly trace Abraham's experience that the book of Genesis records for us. And we actually can use Abraham's age as a guide for us, and we can trace the events of, of Abraham's life that Paul is using as his argument for Christian liberty here. So let's go back and do that. Go to Genesis chapter 12, first of all. Genesis chapter 12, and you're going to find here that Abraham is 75 years old when God calls him to go to Canaan, and God promises him many descendants. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham, Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So at seventy-five years old, God directs Abram to leave his homeland to go to the land of Canaan, and God promises him that he would make of him a great nation. Now, at this time, both Abram, at the time his name was Abram, later God changes it to Abraham, we'll just call him Abraham. At the time, both Abraham and Sarah, they did want children, but Sarah was barren. And God is making a promise to Abraham that he'll make of him a great nation, but God is not going to do that right away. Ultimately, God waits for them both to be as good as dead, if you will, meaning well beyond their childbearing years, beyond their capabilities, before He would ever fulfill His promise of giving them a son. Ten years passes by. At 85 years old, that promised son still has not arrived, and Sarah becomes impatient. And go over to Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 16, what we're going to find here is that Sarah suggests that Abraham marries Hagar, her handmaid, and try to have a son by her. Look in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my handmaid. 
it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And we'll stop right there for a second. So ten years has passed by. Abram's now 85 years old. He's been in the land of Canaan ten years. Sarai comes to him and says, I still haven't had any children or can't, and so you should marry my handmaid, Hagar, and try to have a son by her. Now, that act was legal in that society, but that act was certainly not part of the will of God for Abraham. Abraham followed her suggestion. He marries Hagar, and the very next verse says that she conceived. Now, Look at verse 4, and we'll read a little bit farther, because Abraham's now 86 years old. Verse 4, And he went in unto her, unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes, the Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand, do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction." And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called uh, Bir Laha. You can read it for yourself. And it was between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So now Abraham's 86 years old. Hagar conceives, she bears a son, Sarah is jealous, and when this son is born, he calls his name Ishmael. Now we're going to fast forward again in Abram's life. And I want you to go to chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, because in chapter 17, God speaks to Abraham again, and he promises again that he will have a son by Sarah. Remember, God promised Abraham, I'll make of thee a great nation, and in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This little thing that happened with Hagar was not part of, of God's will. But God comes to Abraham again and promises that he'll have a son by Sarah, and he is supposed to call his name 
Isaac. And later on in chapter 18, God appears again and reaffirms that promise to Sarah as well. But look at chapter 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, go and have this conversation. But you see, Abram's 99 years old when the Lord appears to him again and confirms the promise. Later, he does the same with Sarah. The Bible says that she laughed because her womb was dead. She was well beyond the ability to have children. Now look at chapter 21, because in chapter 21 we find that Abram is, Abraham is now 100 years old. He's 100 years old when his son Isaac is born in chapter 21 in verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abram called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age, and the child grew and was weaned. Let me stop right there for a minute. So Isaac is born. His name means laughter. He's called Isaac as God commanded. But the arrival of Isaac... As joyous as it was, all of a sudden creates a new problem in Abraham's home. Ishmael, who was his son born of Hagar, now has a rival. For 14 years, Ishmael had been his father's only son, very dear to his heart. How is Ishmael going to respond now to a rival? Well, we need to read a little bit further because the Bible gives us some indication here. Look in verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. Now, we don't have an age here, but it was very common in that culture, and it was customary for them to wean their children at about age 3, and they made a great occasion of it. It was a, it was a celebration. It was a party. So you can, you can understand or, or surmise that Abraham is about 103 years old at this point. And the Bible says here that the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. So now Abraham, Abraham's about 103 years old, 
and Isaac is weaned, he makes a great occasion of it. But at the feast that Abraham sets for his son, Ishmael, the Bible says, starts to mock Isaac and to create trouble in the home. There's only one solution to this problem as far as Sarah sees it, and she says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, the Bible tells us that was something that grieved Abraham in his heart, but a little bit later, God comes to Abraham and tells him, don't let this grieve you, do as Sarah says, because in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In Isaac shall thy name be called. It was God's plan for it all. Look down to verse 10, in fact, of chapter 21. Here she says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. All of a sudden now, we've got the seed of Ishmael, or the line of Ishmael, and we've got the line of Isaac. Okay? The solution that Sarah found was to put out or cast out the bondwoman, Hagar, and her son. They had to go. But the Lord tells Abraham, this is what I want you to do too. So now, let me just stop there, because we're looking at the historical facts On the surface, it appears to be nothing more than a story of family drama and family problems. But beneath the surface are meanings that carry some some tremendous spiritual significance to them. Abraham, the two wives, and the two sons represent some spiritual realities, and their relationships teach us some important lessons. So secondly, let's consider the spiritual truths. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. Have I lost you? Are you staying with me here? Okay, I hope so. Galatians chapter 4, and I want you to look in verse 24 with me. So we saw here, verse 22 and 23, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. And what he's talking about is the law of God, the Ten Commandments and so on. That's what he's referring to. And they gender toward bondage, he says. Verse 25, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. The current situation in Jerusalem or the state of the Jews, uh, as it were, was that they were in bondage because they were living by the law and not by faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou, barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. 
But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. So he's making a spiritual correlation here. And Paul explains the meaning behind these historical events. And Paul begins with the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And Paul explains that Ishmael and Isaac illustrate something for us. They illustrate our two births. The physical or fleshly birth that makes us sinners and the spiritual birth that makes us children of God. And as we think about this, we discover some really wonderful truth regarding our salvation in Christ. And I'm going to make an application here for you. It illustrates, or Isaac himself illustrates the believer in several different ways. First of all, we need to understand that Isaac illustrates for us that he was born of the power of God. Okay, so we're making a connection with our salvation here, okay? He was born of the power of God. In fact, God deliberately waited 25 years after he gave the promise before Abraham and Sarah had their son. It was beyond their abilities physically to have a son. Sarah's womb was dead. Abraham was old. There's no physical way that they could do this. Isaac was, as the Bible says, born of the Spirit. Look at chapter 4 and verse 29. But as then he that was born after the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. So what's the connection? Well, when it comes to our salvation, we have no ability and no power to save ourselves. We are born of the power of God. We are also born of the Spirit of God. Amen? John 3 and verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, you've got to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, how can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. This is a spiritual birth. You've got to be born of the Spirit of God in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Don't marvel that I say unto thee, you must be born again. It's a spiritual birth. Isaac was born of the power of God. In salvation, we are also born of the power of God and born of the Spirit. We have no ability to save ourselves. Secondly, Isaac brought joy. His name means laughter. And certainly he brought joy to his parents. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to them. But likewise, when it comes to our salvation, salvation is also an experience of joy and, and a fulfillment of God's promise to all who would come to Him by faith. Do you remember the day that you were born again? And that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of your sin was lifted away and gone. Are we echoing in here? What just happened? I don't know. That's the Spirit of God <laughs> amplifying the truth. <laughs> Salvation is only of the Lord. Salvation is something that brings joy 
we have peace with God. Amen. No longer are we under wrath and condemnation. Thirdly, Isaac illustrates our salvation in this way as well. The Bible says in Genesis 21 and verse 8 that the child grew and was weaned. He grew and was weaned. When it comes to our salvation, salvation is just the beginning. Amen? It's not the end. After we are spiritually born, we must grow in the likeness of Christ. 1 Peter 2.2, As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have an ad- several admonitions in the Scriptures to grow in grace and knowledge and to be like Jesus Christ. Now, along with salvation and along with Christian maturity comes this thing that's likened to weaning. You know how a, a young child is weaned from its mother's milk and it moves on to, to stronger foods that, it, that the child can keep on growing and so on? The same is true in the Christian life, that we are babes in Christ and we need to grow and we need to become those that are mature and able to handle strong meat. But that's not the case so often with Christian people. A lot of times, Christian people stay in this place of infancy. And they don't move on to spiritual maturity. When it comes to Christian maturity, there also comes weaning. We need to lay aside some childish things as we mature and we grow into the image of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about laying aside some childish things, we're not just talking about physical things, maybe the things we do or don't do. It's a lot deeper than that. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and and I want you to look at verse 22. The Bible says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So Paul says, put off the old lifestyle, the old man, the way that he lived. Now that you're a child of God, those things need to be done away with and we need to move on in Christian maturity. Now look down in verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I think we could stop in this verse right here, and if we were honest, we, we would all have to take a good look at this, and we might find that there's some deep conviction that should come over us, because that is not at all what we are sometimes. What comes out of our mouth? That which is good to the use of edifying? or the constant tearing down in the criticism. Go on. That's corrupt. And Paul said in verse 22, put off the former conversation. That's the old man. 
And we're, suppo- we're supposed to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and grow into the image of Jesus Christ. Is that Jesus Christ? Does that describe Him? Let's read on. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. And here it is. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. When we talk about Christian maturity and we talk about weaning and laying aside childish things, it's a whole lot more than just physical things that we do or don't do. We're talking about attitudes. We're talking about thoughts and words towards others. You know what? Sometimes our attitudes and our thoughts and our words towards others are really pretty childish at the end of the day. Stuff we get worked up over, the things we say to each other in those moments where we're arguing or those moments that we don't like that other person, they're really pretty childish. How often we choose to hold on to immaturity rather than letting the Lord move us on to more maturity in Him, to look like Him. Right? The child grew and was weaned. That's what the Lord wants of us in our after salvation. Amen? To grow into the image of Christ, to leave off the former conversation. We see also that He was persecuted. Genesis 21 in verse 9, it tells us in Genesis 21, 9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which had, she had borne unto Abram, mocking. He was, Ishmael was mocking Isaac. Ishmael, which represents the flesh, caused problems for Isaac, just as our old nature causes problems for us. Paul is going to discuss that in greater detail in chapter 5. He's going to talk about the works of the flesh. He's going to talk about what the secret is. It's the Holy Spirit of God controlling us. That's what the secret is. But in Abraham's home, we see the same basic conflicts that the Christian faces today. There's Hagar versus Sarah. That's law versus grace. It's works versus faith. It's Ishmael versus Isaac. That's the flesh versus the spirit. And there was no law that was strong enough to change or control Ishmael. The Bible says that he was a wild man. His hand was against everyone and everyone's hand was against him. Just like there is no law that can change our sinful flesh. Paul's saying we're not born of the works of the flesh. We're born of the Spirit. The law that you're trying to go back into just leaves you in slavery and in bondage. But we're to be free in Jesus Christ. No law can bring life. That's what Paul's trying to say. The Judaizers taught that the law made the believer more spiritual. But Paul makes it clear that the law only brings about conflict and bondage. So Paul explains the two sons, but then he moves on 
to the two wives in verses 25 to 29. And if you go back to our text there in Galatians 4 in verse 25 through 29, we won't read those verses again, but Paul is illustrating here the contrast between law, Hagar, and grace, Sarah. And he's proving that the believer is not under law, but is under the loving freedom that comes through the grace of God. And let me just briefly point out some facts about Hagar that correlate to the fact that the law has no power over the believer in Christ. First of all, and if you'll remember back to the things that we've read, first of all, Hagar was Abraham's second wife. God didn't begin with Hagar. He began with Sarah. And as far as God's dealings with men are concerned, God always begins with grace. Even in the Garden of Eden, God provided for Adam and Eve by grace. Even after they had sinned, His grace provided them with coats of skin for a covering. And you know what God didn't do? God didn't give Adam and Eve a set of laws to obey as a way to find redemption. That's not what God did. Instead, He gave them a gracious promise to believe in, the promise of a a Redeemer that would come. Remember that in Genesis 3 and verse 15? I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the first promise of the Messiah. God didn't give Adam and Eve a set of laws to obey in order to find redemption. He gave them a promise to believe in. God always works in grace. Hagar was Abraham's second wife. Secondly, Hagar Hagar was not meant to bear the promised child. Abraham's marriage to her was out of the will of God. That came by unbelief and impatience. Hagar could not do what Sarah was supposed to do. Do you see the correlation here? The law can never do what faith and grace can do. The law could never give life. The law could never give righteousness. The law could never give the gift of the Spirit. The law could never give you your spiritual inheritance. And the Judaizers were trying to incorporate or make Hagar a mother again and didn't even understand what the law was for. That's why Paul says, do you even understand what the law is saying? What the law is for? And thirdly, and probably the most important thing here, when we're talking about law and grace, is that Hagar was cast out. Genesis 21.9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abram, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And God told Abraham, that that's exactly what he should do, cast the bondwoman out. And the application is this. We're talking about law and grace here. There was not room in the household for Hagar and Ishmael with Sarah and Isaac. One pair had to go. And it is likewise impossible for law and grace to coexist. 
It's impossible for the works of the flesh and the working of the Spirit to compromise and to stay together. It's impossible to mix law and grace and faith and works. You can't have God's gift of salvation and man's attempt to earn salvation. They don't come together. That's what, Aber- that's what Paul is saying to the Galatian believers. They don't exist together. It's either one or the other. And if salvation came by works, then Christ died in vain. Amen? So then look at the last two verses. And we'll make another application here. The practical blessings. Verse 30, Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Meaning that we're children of promise. And we, as believers, like Isaac, are the children of promise by grace through faith. However, and praise the Lord, amen? We're children of the promise. We also have the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are the practical blessings that go along with our salvation. But I want to make an application here. Because we as believers can actually make the same mistake the Galatians were making in failing to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And we can fall into a legalistic way of operating too, just like the Galatians did. Legalism is one of the major problems among Christians today. You say, okay, pastor, what is legalism exactly? That's a good thing to ask. We need to define that. Because we need to keep in mind that legalism does not mean simply having some separation standards that you live by. That's not legalism. What it does mean is worshiping those standards and thinking that somehow we are more spiritual and better standing with God because we hold those standards. Do you see the difference? It also means this, judging other believers on the basis of those standards that we hold. As in, I am spiritual or more spiritual, and you are not because you don't hold the same standard of living. Does that make sense? So it's not simply having some separation standards. It's, it's, it's the heart issue that goes behind it as if uh, I'm worshiping those standards and somehow that makes me more spiritual or has, I have a better standing with God because of these things and you are not as spiritual because you don't live the same way. Just let me give you an example. A person can refrain from smoking. They can refrain from drinking. They can not go to certain places. They cannot do certain things. They can wear this and not wear that. And do all of these upright things and still not be spiritual. 
The Pharisees had high, high standards, and yet they crucified the Son of God. Now, in fairness, people throw the word legalism around a lot, actually, for just about anything, if it's going to justify what they want to do or how they want to live. Like, you can have some standards about you or the way that you live, and someone can look at you and say, oh, you're a legalist. Well, you're not really being a legalist at all, but they just don't like it, and so they're just going to label you as something. And so people throw it around a lot. Here's a, here's a funny story for you. <laughs> and this cracks me up. And it's long gone and in the past, so it doesn't mean anything anymore. But when I first got here, I was accused of being a legalist because I wanted all the men in the choir to wear a tie when they stood up here to sing. Not kidding. People throw that word around a lot for whatever reason if it's going to justify something. But see, that's not really the issue, and that's not really the point. The heart behind it is the point. Just having some personal standards or some separation and holiness that you're compelled and you live by because you feel the Spirit of God is leading you that way, that doesn't make you legalistic. It's if you think those are what gives you merit and favor with God, that's what makes it legalistic. And you know what? The old nature loves legalism because it gives the old nature a chance to look good. The Christian who claims to be spiritual because of how he lives or how he thinks is only fooling himself. You know, when it came to the Judaizers, no doubt they were, they were attractive people. They carried credentials from religious authorities. They had high standards. They watched what they ate. They watched what they drank. They had rules and standards to cover every area of life, making it very easy for their followers to know who was spiritual. See, you're doing all the things, and this makes you spiritual. But you know what? The Judaizers were leading people into bondage and defeat, not liberty and victory in Christ. And the Galatians didn't know the difference. And Paul was very concerned about their spiritual condition. And in the closing chapters of Galatians, Paul addresses the real tragedy of legalism, and that's this. It gives opportunity for the flesh to begin to work. See, the old nature, it can't be controlled by the law. Eventually, it's got to break out. And when it does, watch out. And Paul's going to talk about some of that in the next chapter. But you know, here's another application. Because it explains often, this explains often why people leave a good church. Or why legalistic religious groups have fights and divisions among them. Look at chapter 5 in verse 15. Paul talks about that. He says, 
Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. He's talking about what happens and what goes on between people when legalism is at the root because it gives the flesh an opportunity to work. Why do people end up leaving a good church? Well, they have all these what they call rules and standards they have to live by, but it's not in their heart. And eventually the flesh is going to break out and they can't take it anymore and they get out. Or why religious groups have fights and divisions. Or why they're plagued with the sins of the flesh. Just take a look. You know, every church has its share of problems. But it manifests itself fully in those groups where there is an atmosphere of legalism. You've got to do this and do this and do this or you're not spiritual. And if you don't do this and you don't participate and you're not doing, doing, doing then you're not spiritually minded. Well, may the Lord help us, amen? Only to love Him first and foremost. Him, Him, Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that, Lord, you instruct us here tonight with your word. and Lord, you make the application in the heart as it pleases you. I'm thankful that we have truth that we can depend on, that it never changes. And what was relevant back then is just as relevant today. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to examine our own heart and life even tonight. Lord, what would you have me to take away from this? Lord, do I need to be growing spiritually? Am I holding on to fleshly things or immaturity in my Christian life and Lord is there something about me that the works of the flesh or or that the the flesh takes pride in and Lord may my love for you win the day may you be the center and the focus Lord that I might be more like you however Lord you might apply these principles or these truths Lord I pray that you would and Lord, that we would be quick to submit as your spirit gives direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's